Today, people in Kansas are voting on an amendment to the state constitution that would effectively ban abortions. And Nancy Pelosi is touring what the Pentagon now calls the Indo-Pacific region and threatening to visit Taiwan, which the Chinese government is calling a strategic level provocation. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm Nicole Roussel, a producer of the show, here with Brian Becker, our host. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. We're an independent show and we need your support. Thank you to so many who donate to make this show a reality. Today, we're gonna focus on the right to abortion and the Kansas ballot measure to overturn the right to abortion in the state and effectively ban abortions. But before we do that, let's talk about the breaking news about Nancy Pelosi's trip to Asia and why a visit to Taiwan could spark a major confrontation with China. Her announced itinerary includes Singapore, Malaysia, South Korea, and Japan. Yeah, this is a big one. Nancy Pelosi, multimillionaire, worth somewhere between $130 million and $200 million, ultra-rich, the leader of the Democratic Party, the third person in the line of succession in the United States government. First, it's the president, then the vice president, then the speaker of the House. So she's a very, very high level official. If she goes to Taiwan in this completely gratuitous, that is unnecessary trip, this what the Chinese are calling a strategic level provocation, nobody knows what will happen. Nobody actually knows because obviously Nancy Pelosi going when the Democrats also controlled the White House is very, very different than the last time a Speaker of the House went to Taiwan, which was in 1997. The Speaker of the House at that time was Newt Gingrich, the Republican, and the, the president was Bill Clinton. So the Chinese and the world could read that as the opponent of the executive branch of the government, Newt Gingrich, this right winger, went to Taiwan and defied the Shanghai communique that was signed bilaterally between the U.S. and China in 1972 and then reaffirmed again in 1979 when Deng Xiaoping met Carter and again reaffirmed in a third communique in the early 1980s. The communique says, and this is the basis, the bedrock, or what the Chinese call the guardrails of U.S.-Chinese relations, is that the United States will recognize and does recognize, acknowledges, as in the words of the communiques, that Taiwan is a part of China. Taiwan was always a part of China, or at least for the last many, many, many hundreds of years, much longer than the United States has existed as a country, and even longer than when the first Europeans set foot on the territory of North America. Taiwan was part of China, and Taiwan was seized by Japanese colonialism and integrated into the Japanese empire during that century, the 19th century, where Japan and the Western powers colonized or semi-colonized China, carried out intrusions, in the case of the British, military invasions when China refused to allow British opium to be sold to Chinese people in order to fund British colonial rule over India and Indians. When the Chinese said no to that, 
the British invaded militarily, I mean, bombed the country militarily and seized and stole Hong Kong as retribution for the defiance by the Chinese people who didn't want opium to be imported into their country. So Queen Victoria, we all know about Queen Victoria, she was, yes, indeed, the largest drug dealer in human history, as evidenced by the opium trade imposed on the people of China. So when the Chinese government looks at Hong Kong or Taiwan, these different parts of China that have been seized by foreign imperialist or capitalist countries, the Chinese people, and, and the Chinese have made it very clear since the 1949 revolution, but even before, that they were going to bring the dismembered parts of China back into China, that Hong Kong would come back to China, that Taiwan would come back to China. And this is so important in terms of Chinese politics that for the United States government now and Nancy Pelosi now to go to Taiwan and provoke the Chinese because it's a de facto recognition that the Taiwanese government, not the government in Beijing, the government that rules over the island of Taiwan, is a recognizable, that is a legitimate independent entity from China. I mean, this isn't the only act. There have been many, many other provocations that China has endured, but it's a big deal for the Chinese. And Nancy Pelosi knows this, and Joe Biden knows it, and Anthony Blinken knows it, the Pentagon knows it. The Pentagon has been carrying out military maneuvers and strategic planning in the event of a clash between China and U.S. military forces at the time Nancy Pelosi visits Taiwan. So how is it that the Speaker of the House, this one person, again, this super rich, multi, multi, multi-millionaire, how can this one person defy the Shanghai communique and the basic elements or features or guardrails of U.S.-Chinese relations, that is to recognize that Taiwan is part of China and that its ultimate destiny will only be solved by the people on both sides of the Taiwan Straits, meaning by Chinese people, by China. How could it be that Nancy Pelosi is doing this? Well, she is doing it not because she's a rogue actor, not because she's so powerful. She can't be doing this without the blessing of more important and more powerful political forces, including Biden, who officially says he's not for it or sort of unofficially says he's not for the trip. But she could not really be defying the entire U.S. military industrial complex and intelligence services if they were adamantly against her going. So the Chinese are, are looking at this and they're saying, and they've been saying it very clearly, we consider this a strategic level provocation. A top Chinese official said, those who play with fire will perish by it. Xi Jinping, the president, the leader of China, said it directly to Joe Biden in a very long conference call last week. Don't do this. Don't come to Taiwan. Don't let her come to Taiwan. And then earlier in the week, Nicole, there was an announcement by Pelosi's office that her itinerary included Singapore, Malaysia, South Korea, and Japan, and did not mention Taiwan. So a number of people thought, oh, great, they're backing down. They're, they're recognizing reality. They're not going to engage in this strategic level provocation. But I was talking to people in the Answer Coalition. Of course, I've been a longtime organizer and founder of the Answer Coalition. We're collaborating with Code Pink, Veterans for Peace, and of course, an initiating organization, Pivot to Peace, in a demonstration that took place yesterday at Nancy Pelosi's office in San Francisco. Of course, she's from San Francisco. 
to say, cancel the trip to Taiwan. And our thinking from the beginning was Nancy Pelosi may not be revealing whether or not she's going to Taiwan, but the U.S. is very interested in poking China to see what China's response will be, watching Chinese military maneuvers. And there are military maneuvers and war exercises being carried out by China right now, right now in anticipation of the trip. So in a way, even if Nancy Pelosi ends up not going, the U.S. can kind of see what China's military reaction is. So it's an intelligence gathering operation. But just think about it, Nicole. You know, how much does this trip cost? How much does it cost taxpayers? How much does it cost the Pentagon to be able to engage in high-level military preparations because Nancy Pelosi might go to Taiwan. I mean, all of this is in the tens of millions of dollars, actually, paid for by U.S. taxpayers. At the same time, the Democrats are going into the midterm election. What are the big issues? The people are paying double what they were paying a year ago for gas. The fact that the country has lost a million dead because of COVID. Inflation isn't just at gasoline pumps. Food prices have gone up 10, 12 percent. At the same time, women I've been denied the right to an abortion. 50% of the people getting abortions, 50% of the women and others who need abortions are people, are women living under the poverty line. And most of the other people getting abortions are also living just above the poverty line. So you have this war on women, this war on abortion rights, this war on workers, and that's what inflation is. All of this going on. And so what does Nancy Pelosi, the leader of the Democratic Party in Congress do? Think, well, let's go have a confrontation with China. Like, why would anybody do that except to acknowledge, really, that the Democratic Party isn't really trying to serve the people, doesn't serve the people. It is, in fact, the servant of the military-industrial complex. It is a hardline, right-wing, pro-imperialist, pro-militarist organization and Nancy Pelosi is the leader of it. And sadly, because the Republicans are so right-wing, almost fascist in many places, a lot of progressives still say, we have to vote for the Democrats. We have to organize for the Democrats because if we don't have the Democrats, we're going to have a very right-wing party. Well, the reality is we have two right-wing parties. One is far, far right, and the other is just far right. And those are the options. Those are the, that's the so-called variety that bourgeois democracy has offered the U.S. working class at the polls. Anyway, we're going to keep following this story. We had a very important show two weeks ago with China expert Ken Hammond. Ken has been on this show several times, but it was on our The Real Story podcast on Thursday and the night before it was on Breakthrough News. But we went into an exhaustive discussion about how China views Taiwan and why this would be foolhardy, to put it mildly, for the United States and Nancy Pelosi to go to Taiwan. Anyway... Here you have it, Nicole, at the time that the American people actually have direct, immediate, and unmet needs, the Democratic Party, again, just months before the midterm elections, has opted for creating a possible war crisis with a major nuclear power as if that's their priority, because let's face it, that is their priority. All the more reason that, the, that those who are socialists, those who are progressive, those who are independent, those who are anti-imperialist, those who are for peace, need to be independent from the Democratic Party. We need an independent mass movement. The Socialist Program podcast and show is about being a voice, bringing information and perspective to help build that kind of grassroots movement. 
If we don't have that kind of grassroots movement, if it's not powerful enough, the war makers, and they're from both parties, are taking the country on a collision course with so-called major power conflict with China and with Russia. That's why people must act. Couldn't agree more, Brian. And I want to turn to our main story for today, where we're talking about one of those incredibly important issues that you mentioned, this war on women and this war on abortion rights and reproductive rights. And today is a really historic moment in Kansas, where residents will vote on an abortion ballot measure that's the first of its kind since Roe v. Wade was overturned in the Dobbs v. Jackson women's health decision. The measure would strip away the constitutional right to abortion in the state. And Kansas has long been the center of the anti-women, anti-abortion rights campaign. For example, in 1991, right-wing forces from around the country gathered in Wichita, Kansas, to prevent women from accessing abortion clinics. And two separate right-wingers at two separate times shot at abortion doctor, Dr. George Tiller. The second one killed him. Now, after the recent Supreme Court decision, some abortion rights volunteers and activists are getting involved for the first time in this major vote for Kansans and for the country. And Kansans have been out mobilizing, knocking on doors and calling people to get them out to vote. Doctors even signed a public letter urging voters to oppose the measure and therefore keep the right to abortion. 400 Kansas doctors signed on to this letter. So today we're honored to share with you three excellent presentations from a convening this past weekend called Free, Safe, Legal Abortions Now, Justice is Ours to Make. This was put on at the People's Forum in New York. The first speaker who was introduced is Claudia de la Cruz. She's the co-executive director of the People's Forum. She's a popular educator, community organizer, and a theologian. You'll hear Claudia then introduce Karina Garcia. She's a reproductive justice organizer for over a decade and a member of the Central Committee of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. And then last, she'll introduce Mara Verhayden-Hilliard, a constitutional rights lawyer and executive director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. I'm going to pass it off to Claudia de la Cruz, who is the co-executive director of the People's Forum, an amazing organizer, cultural worker, and builder of people power all over the world. So I'm gonna pass it off to Claudia. Hannah likes to hype me up and I like when she does it. <laughs> How's everybody doing? Good? High energy, high morale, high discipline, high morale? All right, familia. So I, I literally just got back from a trip to Cuba. So I'm just literally coming from the airport. And I was thinking a lot about this event while I was there, mainly because Cuba has been discussing the family code, which is a reaffirmation of different types of families, the reaffirmation of women's rights over their bodies, and coming from a place that self-denominates itself as a democratic place, being in Cuba puts forth the reality that we live in the most undemocratic, the most profit-driven, and the least human-centered society we could potentially speak about, and that is the United States of America. I think it's important for us to raise in this context, in the context of today's event, that the attack on women's right to choose whether they have an abortion or not is not simply an attack on reproductive justice, is an attack to the working class women and birthing people all over this country. We're talking about the United States of America right now. And we're talking about the U.S. precisely because we have so-called leaders who like to talk about undemocratic processes all over the world. 
in relationship to Cuba, in relationship to Venezuela, in relationship to China. And what we're saying is that the United States needs to get their act together. And that the ballot has been pushed as a vehicle for the working class to make changes. And we have historically learned that that is not the case. That neither the Republicans or the Democrats give a damn about working class people. And it has been under Democrat ruling that the working class have been hurt the most. That wars have been started across the, across the globe. That trillions of dollars have been placed in attack of working class people in the United States and again, internationally. And so we hope that with this event, with this panel, we're able to shed some light on how necessary it is to do cross-sectoral work, meaning that we need to break from these questions about immigrants do work here, black people do work here, LGBTQ folks do work here, but we need to come together and we need to build a unified movement, build on principle and build on the clarity that politically as a working class, we have no other option but a revolution in this country. And we cannot expect politicians to give it to us. We have to take it. And with that, I want to welcome you all to the space. So give yourselves a round of applause. I'm a very privileged and honor to, again, be on this panel with four amazing human beings. The first person that I want to introduce and have her share a little bit with us is Karina Garcia, who is an educator. She is a friend. She is a mother. She's been doing the work around reproductive justice for over a decade. She's a popular educator, and she's also part of the Central Committee of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. So please welcome Karina Garcia. Hello, hello. Thank you, Claudia. I'm very honored to be here and happy to see you all here. I, in this presentation, I want to focus on something that's a little bit new. It speaks to where we are and it speaks to the nature of what's coming. So at Breaking the Chains, we believe that we are entering a period that constitutes a very sharp break from what we've been experiencing recently. We don't know what the outcome will be, but it will certainly have revolutionary potential. But it will also have a very reactionary and fascistic potential. And so we have to be really clear and really honest about that too. It's an undecided moment because we have only begun to struggle, but it's coming. So the Supreme Court decision that ends the constitutional right to abortion, that has to be understood in its full scope. First of all, this fundamentally important right the right to decide about whether or when to become a parent, to make decisions about your health, about your body, about your future, and including the right to safely end a pregnancy. This right has existed in the, not only existed in the books for the last 50 years, but it also enjoys the support of the vast majority of the population and the vast majority of women. And yet the Supreme Court did it even though the majority of the country did not want this to happen, they went ahead and they did it. 
The most important thing to understand is that from their point of view, they have succeeded in doing something really extreme. And it was a direct and frontal assault on the majority of the population, but they succeeded. Six individuals, three of whom were appointed by Donald Trump, <laughs> succeeded in eviscerating the legal right to abortion for women and all those who need abortion, including non-binary people and trans men. Why did they do it? Yes, we know that they're right-wing religious lunatics, but this was part of a larger agenda and we're all here to talk about that too, right? By basing the decision on the notion that abortion rights didn't exist in the original constitution, what the Supreme Court of the United States is doing is they're deciding that the only real law of the land is the original constitution. And that's why we have to do what Comrade Claudia was talking about, bring all of our struggles together because that's the way that they're thinking. That's the way that they're organized. And that's the way that we're gonna be organized too. But the difference is we have the vast majority of the population with us. That's the difference. We're not all organized and we're not all on the same page yet, but that's where we're going. And that's the purpose of this convening. So I wanna thank you for coming. I wanna thank you for being here. And I know that we're gonna all get to know each other a lot better as we fight for our future. Because none of us here, anybody who came here on a Sunday, you are exactly the kind of person that we need. The kind of person that's saying, we're not gonna give up, that we're gonna fight, that we're not gonna let this little tiny group of billionaires determine and destroy our futures and our families. We're not gonna let that happen. So yes, give yourself a round of applause. We can have a little energy. Yes, that's the kind of energy that we're gonna need and that's what we have. We have that already. We've shown it time and time again in the struggles against police brutality, in the struggles for LGBTQ liberation, the struggles for a better wage, the struggles for immigrant rights, all of these different struggles, but we've been isolated. Now we have to really come together. So according to them, the amendments that came later, the 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, voting rights, LGBTQ rights, marriage equality, all of that are on the chopping block. In 1910, the number of black people who could vote in Mississippi was 2%. That was before the Voting Rights Act of 1965 which is not part of the original constitution. But black people made it a part of the constitution. And they did it alongside with progressive, radical, revolutionary people who saw that struggle as important and fundamental to liberation in this country. They made it a part of the constitution. And that's where we're gonna learn from our comrades in Chile too, who are also changing their own constitution. So these little right-wingers are trying to change the constitution to fit their purposes, but we need to organize our people to change it for our purposes, to go forward and expand democracy, not to go back. The idea that the Environmental Protection Agency, another case that they recently decided, that they don't have the right to limit emissions and that the government does not have the right to regulate business. That also is not in the original constitution. The main issue that's being debated now in the Moore versus Harper, which is scheduled for a hearing in October, 
This case is very, very important. We have to pay very close attention to what happens in this case. This is about a gerrymander that conflicts with the North Carolina Constitution. But the issue that's at the core of this debate is what is being called the independent state legislature doctrine. So the independent state legislature doctrine literally gives state legislatures the power to pre-rig or simply hand over the elections to the candidate of their choice. The independent state legislator theory was first invoked by three conservative U.S. Supreme Court justices in the Bush versus Gore case that handed the 2000 election to George W. Bush. Now, I'm all looking into this stuff now. I didn't remember all this stuff, but we're following it now because it's affecting us, right? So technically, in that case, Bush lost the election, but the Supreme Court appointed him anyway in a 5-4 decision that ruling that the individual citizen has no federal constitutional right to vote for electors. That's what they decided. In that case, there were three SCOTUS justices, Rehnquist, Scalia, and Clarence Thomas, who is now the senior most member of the court. They cited the independent state legislator doctrine to give Bush the presidency, even though he lost the popular vote, and therefore the electors of the state of Florida. And now... Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, has been using the exact same argument to encourage the attempted coup on January 6th. I'm actually going to read the Constitution, the section of the Constitution that these right-wingers are trying to use to eviscerate the power of the popular vote. And I want to say, too, that before recently, I couldn't care less about the Constitution. This document that was written by a bunch of slaveholders, by a bunch of colonial elites who were responsible for the genocide of black people, native people, and not poor people. So I didn't care about this document before, but because that's where they're focused, that's where we got to focus, too, right? So here we go. Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution. Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in Congress. In other words, the state legislature can pick the electors. This is what the right-wing justices are really positioning themselves for in the 2024 elections. They are ruling that case in 2023. And if we remember, Trump made this argument over and over again when he claimed that the vote was rigged. And he insisted that the state legislators should be able to appoint their own electors despite the popular vote. The Supreme Court now is going to be deliberating on this very notion, the issue whether state legislators will be able to decide who the electors are or whether the popular vote will continue to decide the electors. So this is going to happen next year. So I know I haven't talked that much about abortion rights right now, but we see what they're really gunning for. So why are they taking this case now? They're taking it because they want to change the form of government of the United States. The right wing of the Supreme Court is the tip of the spear of the right wing vanguard in this country. And the right wing of the ruling class understands very well that their power is slipping. The country has changed. There are too many black people, Latino people, young people who will not vote for Republicans and they can no longer win national elections. Those are just facts. 
Remember, Trump had 73 million votes. He had one of the highest votes of Republican candidates in many, many years. And he still lost the popular vote to Biden, of all people. Right? So they understand this. They understand this. And so since they can't win, just like the rules exist, they want to change the rules. And they want to do it before it's too late. So... They want to change the rules so that Republicans can dominate into the future because they now control 30 state legislatures and this could be their last window to do it. So they're taking a real offensive against the American people right now and they're playing a dangerous game. January 6th in retrospect could be seen as a dress rehearsal for the kind of institutional coup where the Supreme Court empowers a right wing to constitutionally ignore the popular vote in the states where they lose. So just think about the implications of that for a moment. What that would trigger, the crisis in big cities, the level of mass action and civil disobedience, the questions that that puts before the police and the mayors, the governors, the military, and how it can empower the far right. The whole system will be seen as illegitimate to millions of people, huge numbers of people, hundreds of millions of people who've been told their entire life that they live in a democracy, that one person, one vote. So it's clear that we've been entering into a new period of global politics, but we are entering into a new period of domestic politics too. And it seems, I know it seems a little bit crazy to think about it, but that's how fast politics can change. So these struggles for democratic rights have immense revolutionary potential. The idea that the right-wing legislators can decide who will receive the electoral vote in their state, the people of the United States are not going to accept that. They're not going to accept that. Women are not going back. LGBTQ people are not going back. Black people are not going back. Latinos are not, the people are not going back. And so we have to pay close attention to what happens in the Moore case. The implications are very far reaching and this could in fact create a self-acting movement once again. And we've seen that. We've been a part of that, right? So we know the potential of the movement, but we gotta be organized. And the movement's gonna involve people with lots of different politics and It's going to be a struggle to defend democracy. But for us, we can't just be about defending the system as it exists. That's the program of the Democratic Party. We want to expand what democracy actually is so that it includes economic rights, so it includes social rights. We know that one side of the party tries to hold us hostage. The other one attacks good cop, bad cop. One side attacks us, and then the other side holds us hostage till November, right? The perpetual fight that they have. We have to be a third force. We have to expand this democracy instead of using our massive resources and technology to fund new wars and billionaire vanity projects, we could use those resources to pay to meet people's needs, to do the things that actually matter, to support people who are living and breathing in this country and beyond actually. So with that, you know, our demands just have to be better than a new president. We're so past that. We need a new society. We need a new system for the people and the planet to survive. Capitalism must end. Thank you. 
This is Mara Verhayden Hilliard. She is from the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. She is a constitutional rights lawyer and executive director and co-founder of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. So let's welcome Mara. I am really honored to be here and it has been amazing to listen to everyone who has spoken already, really raising the most critical issues that we're facing right now and also laying out a path forward. And I think echoing some of that, I think it's crucial that we understand the place that we're in right now in order to forge that path as as folks have been talking about and understanding what this court is doing with the decision in Dobbs to eviscerate abortion rights, but also understanding what that means in the larger perspective of what the court is doing and what the right wing is attempting to do in the United States. The decision in Dobbs to destroy abortion rights, a fundamental right that has been legally recognized for a half century, one would think it would be such an over-the-top extreme effort that it couldn't possibly stand. And yet they did it and they did it and they feel good about it and they feel that they succeeded. And because they feel they succeeded with something so extremist, they are absolutely looking at every other opportunity to roll back legally recognized rights, rights that are inherently ours, but legally recognized rights so that they can criminalize us, so they can criminalize liberation. And that's what they're trying to do. They are going to be looking at affirmative action, anti-discrimination laws, voting rights, fundamental principles of democracy. And across the board, I think we can anticipate what they're going to do each step of the way. And where does that leave us? As we look at the Supreme Court, I mean, all of us who go to grow up in the United States, going to school in the United States, you know, we have our pillars of democracy and our wonderful Supreme Court with these brilliant people in robes who issue neutral decisions based on their incredible knowledge, Ivy League generally trained as to what the law says, what is the law. And here you have an opinion where Justice Alito was repeatedly referring to Matthew Hale as the erudite, as the great thinker, the great legal mind that set forth the history of law when we look at the history of a right to an abortion and access to abortion and use of abortion as a medical procedure. And Matthew Hale, as I think many folks may know, and for those that don't, I mean, this is a judge from the 1600s. So we are now in 2022 with the Supreme Court of the United States, the majority telling us that we need to be looking at a judge from the 1600s who is famous for overseeing the trials of women who were accused of being witches and hung for being witches, which he oversaw and sentenced women to death and instructed juries that witches are real because the scripture told him so. This is a man who said that women cannot be raped by their husbands because women are property and property, of course, cannot be subject to rape or violation of bodily integrity. And yet his name appears over and over in an opinion in 2022. And that's where we are. Unashamed, unabashedly, this is a court that is looking to go all out to institutionalize 
racism and white supremacy, misogyny and complete patriarchal control over society, a patriarchal control exercised through the evisceration of abortion rights that forces people into a patriarchal determination as to the future of their lives to affect millions and millions of women and trans men and non-binary people because it's the patriarchy that demands how people must live, express themselves, and whether they can control their own destiny and their own humanity. So this is also a court that is seeking to go even further to institutionalize the rights of capital over the rights of workers and really the power of capital over the rights of workers. And they are looking to roll back really about a hundred years of court rulings. If you think about like the Supreme Court as an institution, it's an institution that up until the end of the Civil War, over and over again, was a pro-slavery court that was over and over again issuing rulings about the right of enslavers to enslave humanity, to enslave Black people. And as its great thinkers on the Supreme Court, the all-knowing, all-powerful Supreme Court, completely pro-slavery, after the Civil War, it worked to try and fight back and roll back all the legislative enactments of Reconstruction that were then giving Black people, formerly enslaved people, and free Black people recognized rights in the United States. And that's what the Supreme Court did, was dismantle Reconstruction-era laws that would have really changed society in an amazing way and in a powerful way for liberation. And then they were an extreme anti-labor, pro-business court, something that never really led up, but began to sort of step back in the 1930s with that court of that era and its rulings with regard to Roosevelt era, New Deal laws and progressive laws for workers and other progressive enactments of the New Deal era. This court wants to take us back really to the late 20s, a hundred years ago. And it's the court working in conjunction with a right-wing effort in the United States to impose a patriarchy and white supremacy on the population and try and stranglehold it. And they're doing that through these state legislatures that are extremist in dozens of states at this point. And with the efforts to try and empower the state legislatures to control the electoral votes, they want to cement and solidify that. And while relying on the right-wing federal Supreme Court to then sort of roll back any positive legislative enactments that come either through Congress, which as we know, Congress is mainly just sitting on its hands and fighting each other, but or ones that come through progressive state legislatures. So it's really just in a means to an end right now for this court. And anyone who's in this struggle, anyone who's watching this struggle has to know that on the other side of it, things are gonna look very different. And it's gonna be up to us to decide what does our society look like on the other side of this. This is a fight and a struggle unlike anything in our lifetimes. This is a struggle 
that is fundamentally, the outcome will involve a fundamental remaking of American society. And it will either be that society is remade in a way to punish and repress and shut down the fight for liberation in the United States, or it will be the opportunity in the moment where we change society and we make society the society that we know that it can be, that it has the resources to be, a society that recognizes human liberation, that supports people and gives people what they need to survive and beyond what they need to survive, where laws are enacted to protect people's rights, not to restrict and criminalize people. And it's a fight where really nobody can be on the sidelines. It's not the kind of situation which I think sometimes folks look at what's happening and think, well, you know, it's a pendulum swing and it goes this way and it goes that way. And if we just kind of wait it out, it will end up going back to something that maybe we didn't love, but it's kind of okay. We're not there. Right now, this is going to be a fight that determines really everything in terms of how our lives are going to be in this country. And obviously also affecting countries around the planet. I mean, you, you can't separate any one struggle from any other struggle. And like was being said in, by prior speakers, the issue of the fight for liberation and intersectionality have to go hand in hand. I mean, when we're fighting for climate justice, you can't fight for climate justice in just one place. You have to fight for climate justice everywhere. And when you fight for climate justice, how do you disentangle that from the right of indigenous people? And how do you disentangle that, or why would you, of course, from an anti-racism struggle? Because they're all together. And how does any of this become disentangled? Because, of course, it can't be and it shouldn't be from the fight for bodily integrity, for abortion rights, for women's rights, for the rights of the LGBTQ plus community. This is crucial. And understanding that we don't want to be disentangled, that we need to be together to fight that we have to be together to fight for racial justice, for women's rights, for LGBTQ rights, for every struggle coming together as one fight, because the Supreme Court and the right wing know that. When you look at what they're trying to dismantle over the last hundred years, that's the hundred years of struggle of progressive change in the United States, the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movements, the LGBTQ movement, the women's rights movement, and the climate justice movement. These have been the fights of the last hundred years that have been succeeding, that have changed the consciousness in American society. And the court has followed because it's been forced to follow. And now they have decided that they are going to put the brakes on the powerful force of human liberation that is surging forward. And it's up to all of us to be able to say that you can't put the brakes on. And in fact, it's an accelerant. The right wing actually has now created the dismantlement of these institutions. Interestingly enough, it's really coming from the right wing in the end that they are actually dismantling these institutions that have so long actually served them in many, many ways. And yet, because they are so bold and so extreme, they have created a delegitimacy and a destruction that, again, it's up to us to decide what gets built and what we're gonna have moving forward. And I wanna just say again, I'm really happy to be here. I really wish I could be with you in person. 
and see everyone. But thank you to the People's Forum for hosting this. And I am grateful to everyone who's in this together in the struggle. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.